Well, in the summer of 2006, I took a job as the housing director for Indiana University's diving camps, uh, which was fun because the, the head coach of the IU's diving uh, team was the Olympic coach, so it was a pretty prestigious camp. But uh, total transparently, I took, that, uh, I took that job for one reason, which is they were going to pay me an obscene amount of money for a very little work. And so as a, you know, a freshly graduated college student who was kind of breaking into ministry, was like, this is a no-brainer. You're going to pay me lots of money to do very little things. Let's do this. Uh, and so I took that job, and it was, it was a lot of fun. Like I said, there were people from all over the world who came in, uh, many of whom were sort of destined to become the, the U.S. best uh, divers in the next uh, few years. And it was, it was fun for me because uh, I connected really well uh, with uh, the kids who came, most of whom were non, uh, non-Christians. And it sort of became like a ministry opportunity. And, and so we, I just developed these relationships with a lot of these kids, sort of like almost like being a youth pastor to diving uh, camp students for the summer. And, and just decided, uh, as those relationships developed, uh, they became, it became so close at the end of the camp, uh, they tried to convince me to jump off the 10-meter board, which I quickly uh, realized 10 meters is much higher than it sounds. It's actually thir- like 30 feet. Uh, it's like jumping off a three-story building. And so when I saw the 10-meter board, I was like, that's, not, that's never happening. Uh, and, and so I didn't, but there was this close relationship that that developed, and I, I connected so well with them. Many of them wanted to keep uh, the conversation going after they left, and so they they convinced me. Uh, to, this is 2006, all right, but they convinced me to uh, create a MySpace account. <laughs> Anybody? Yeah, my, you you laugh immediately, right? So I can I I take a MySpace account. Uh, I pick up a MySpace account. I, you know, I continue those friendships. Um, but in that, because I started this MySpace account. I also got reconnected with this friend from high school named Misty Mason. And, yeah, some of you knew this insider. So we started talking, and later, uh, that was, she would become my wife. Uh, and now we, I've, I don't remember how many kids we have now. It's, it's all a blur at this point. But uh, we have some kids. Uh, you know, so, like, so you think about this. Uh, because of my greed and because of my space, I got married. Right? That's, and it leads to a question that I want to think about, because Genesis 24 is also about a marriage. Um, is my life ruled by chance or something else? And by extension, is your life ruled by chance or is it ruled by something else? Like I said, Genesis 24, it's a story about... Uh, Rebecca and Isaac, who become the next phase of the story of Genesis, we move from Abraham and Sarah to Rebecca and Isaac. It's a story about a marriage, but it's about something much, much more than this. And so what I want to do is, Genesis 24, it's a long story. We only read a few verses, but we're going to look at this story through three main characters. Uh, Abraham, Abraham's servant, who's not named in the story, but it's probably Eleazar. So Abraham, Eleazar, and Rebecca. So first, uh, Abraham. Now, we've been looking at Abraham several weeks now. This is truly where he moved, like he dies uh, in this story. And so we're truly moving on from him in this story. But you have to remember, you know, Genesis, this, this part of Genesis, uh, which began in chapter 12, starts with this promise to Abraham that through his descendants, uh, salvation is going to come to the entire world. That through Abraham and Abraham's descendants, God is going to introduce a plan of salvation into the entire world. And so the trouble is now that Isaac, Abraham's son, is not married. He doesn't have a wife. And so there, there can be no descendants without, without a wife. 
So Genesis 24, what feels like kind of like eHarmony, matchmaker story, let's get this guy and this girl together, is not. It's more, right, it's more Spider-Man coming home. It's more Avengers. It's like the entire fate of the world hangs in the balance. There can be no salvation if Isaac has no son, right? That's, that's really what's at stake in this story. The dramatic tension of this story is, will God's promise continue past Abraham to the next generation? And so Abraham, he's about to die, and he asks his servant to go find a wife for Isaac. And we might wonder, like, why wouldn't Isaac do this himself, right? Like, why, where's Isaac in the story? And, and there's a reason for this. There's two reasons why Abraham does not send Isaac to go find his wife. First is that, that Abraham makes clear that Abraham, or Isaac is not to marry a Canaanite. So Isaac is not to marry from the people that surround them. And the reason, and, and I don't have time to get into this, and this raises tensions and problems, I realize, but for whatever reason, throughout the Bible, the Canaanite people were considered a cursed people by God. This goes back to the story of Noah, but, but as, as we see the, the, the story develop, one, one of the main reasons why is they were very wicked. Uh, they were very evil people. They, they performed child sacrifice on a regular basis. But that's why Abraham does not want Isaac to get a wife from the Canaanites because God knows the trajectory of that people. And so therefore, Isaac is not to marry into that family. So that's why Isaac can't pick a wife from among the people he lives near, which means Isaac has to go on a long, a long journey back to Abraham's homeland to find a wife. And that's why Isaac is not to make that journey. Abraham makes clear two times in this passage that Isaac is not to make that journey back to Abraham's homeland. And the reason for that is this, is a, central to God's promise to Abraham wasn't just that a, a salvation was going to break in to the whole world through Abraham's descendants, but also there was going to be this, this land that he, God was going to give them, and, and, and Abraham was to go in the direction of that land. And for Isaac then to go back to where Abraham came from, uh, would be, it'd be like a step back of faith. It'd be like retreading the story. It'd be like going back to the place that it all started. It'd be, it'd be reversal. So Isaac is to remain in the land God has promised. He's not to return back. And so that's why the story begins with Abraham reaching out to his servant and saying, uh, go back and find a, a wife for my son Isaac. And so what's interesting about the story is we get Abraham's last words. And what's interesting to me about this is if you take Abraham's last words and you compare them with his first words, they're very different. The first words that Abraham speaks are in Genesis 15, and those are words of, of doubt and uncertainty. And he asks God, how can I know that all these things that you've done, um, you're actually going to do them? And if you remember back to that sermon, like, God's not rebuking Abraham for his doubt, but it's, it's there. He, God, Abraham is unsure God's going to do what he said. And later in the story, those doubts turn into to Abraham making really poor decisions and leading into sin and trying to take God's plan into Abraham's own hands. That's where, that's where Abraham starts, is he has a really hard time trusting God's plan of salvation. But now in Genesis 24, he's made enormous progress. And listen to what he says uh, in verse... Eight. So his servant is to go find a wife for Isaac. The salvation of God's plan for the entire world hangs in the balance. Like this guy has to find a wife for Isaac or what's going to happen. But here's how Abraham ends his call to the servant. Right, if you find a woman willing to marry Isaac, but she's not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. 
Right? In other words, Abraham says, if, if it doesn't work, and Isaac doesn't have a wife, it's okay. Right? You're released from this oath. Just don't take my son back there. Don't retread the promises of God. Earlier in Abraham's life, he did everything he could to get control of God's plan, to, to take control of God's plan. And it always led to disaster. And now, here at the end, Abraham's open-handed. God will provide. He doesn't know how. God will, will provide. And so this question, is my life ruled by, by chance? Abraham would say no. And he stopped living a life of, of chance, of who knows what will happen, of uncertainty. And he now lives a life of faith. And his life of faith, any life of faith, is a life of open-handed trust. Open-handed trust. Right? He tells his servant, like, go look for a wife. But if, if it doesn't work... That's okay. Don't, don't, just don't do something. Don't force it, right? It's open-handed trust. And, and Abraham understands what the author, theologian, J.I. Packer, says about us, Christians, people in the way of Jesus, that if you're in the way of Jesus, your life is never in the hands of blind fate. Your life is never in the hands of blind fate. That, that I would ask, like, do you believe that this morning? That like Abraham and his, his son and, and fulfilling the promises of God, finding a wife, like what uncertainty is in front of you in this phase of your own life? What are you hoping God pro- will provide for you? What's in front of you that, that, that you're not sure of? And when it comes to those things, do you have a spirit of open-handed trust? Do you believe that whatever is ahead, God will be in the midst of that? Whether it's doing what you want Him to do or doing the opposite of what you want Him to do. I think one of the great problems uh, in my own life, and, and it's a lesson I've been un, you know, trying to figure out in the last year, God's trying to, be, to teach me, is that, that I think I am in control of so much more than I am actually in control of. Right? Like I, have, I actually have so little control over what is going on in my life. And, and, and I think what God is trying to lead me to, and I think all of us to, is not to see our lives is something we need to, need to be in control of, where we need to answer our own prayer requests, right? Where we need to take control, make sure we direct things in the, the direction we want them to go, but to wake up each morning with a sense of open-handed trust that, God, wherever today goes, wherever you lead me today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk into that. Whether you provide what I'm asking for or you don't, I'm going to live a life of open-handed trust. And that's why I started talking about like how, like Missy and I got married, and it's like deeply engaged, involved with MySpace. Right? Like, you just think back to that. Like, that's just absurd that this like small tech, or you know, this tech company that only lasted for a few years and died. It's like, well, without it, would I not have met my wife? Like, what would have happened? It's like you get into these questions. It's just the, the play in the story of God. It's there's humor, right? You cannot tell me that the story of my marriage. The, 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 you all laughed, right? There's humor there. And when you come to this place that God is is He is ruling history my life is not ruled by chance, this is not blind fate ahead of me, then you, you can live a life of open-handed trust. You can laugh, right? You can have a sense of, of, of destiny and hopefulness that's not possible when you think it's, it's all on you. And anything with that, does that just mean we float through life, you know, just lay on the couch, grab a bag of Cheetos, and just wait to see what happens? No, it's, we'll get to point two in a second. But, but for now, there is the sense, whatever's ahead in your life, like God, God's in control of that. Abraham understands that, finally. 
Which is why the entire plan of salvation, which is, is dependent on Isaac finding a wife to some extent. I mean, how is you know, Isaac going to have a son without, or a child without a wife? We don't know. Abraham doesn't know. And Abraham's finally gotten to the place where, well, God, this is your problem. You're going to figure this out. And that's what a life of, of faith looks like. Open-handed trust. And yet, as I mentioned, like, this doesn't mean laziness. This doesn't mean you have no responsibility, just don't do anything, just sit around and wait for God to act. No, Abraham is acting here, right? He is sending his servant on a journey. And so a life of faith is not just a life of open-handed trust. Um, it's, it's more than that. And we see that as we move in from character one, Abraham, to character two, Eleazar. And so he sends, uh, Abraham sends Eleazar out on a journey and, and Elias starts to go to Abraham's homeland, and he does. He makes a long journey, and when he gets there, he prays. Uh, and, and this is what Elias prays as he's looking for um, a wife for Isaac. This is his prayer to God. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Yet let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let your jar down that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one you have appointed for your son, your servant, Isaac. So that's his prayer, right? It's, God, I'm going to camp out of this, this well, and let the woman who comes and offers me a drink and, and gives a drink to my camels, let her be the one that is, should be Isaac's wife. And like, total, like the first time I read that, I thought this sounded like, like a superstitious prayer. Right, like, God, show me a sign, like, you know, make this tree fall, and then I'll know that I'm supposed to do that. It's like, that's, that's what it feels like, right? Is God, you know, jump through this hoop for me, and then I know that, uh, that you're, this is the plan. This is the way, way forward. And I think all of us have probably prayed a prayer at some point like that, right? Where it's like, this kind of, like, show me this, and if you do this, and if that happens, and if these things line up, then I'll do it, right? It's, but that's not what's happening um, here at all. Actually, the, what's actually happening is a servant is praying, that when someone shows him good hospitality, a very normal thing in this day, let that be the sign that this is to be a wife for Isaac. The, one, the first person who shows me true hospitality, um, I'm going to take that as a sign that this, this is a woman worthy of taking back and being a part of the salvation plan of God. In other words, what, what he's praying for is a very normal thing. It's not a miraculous thing. It's a very normal, everyday of life type of, of thing. And so what, what Eliezer is essentially doing, what commentators point out, is that Eliezer is asking God to keep his eyes open in normal everyday life to someone who shows like meaningfully good hospitality to him. He's not asking for a miraculous sign. He's not asking for a wonder. He's not asking for God to like perform a magic trick for him. And that's, then, then I know it's the right thing. It's no, it's Whoever shows me, like, godly, good hospitality, that's a sign. This is a woman worthy of the salvation plan of God. So sure enough, a woman comes, Rebecca, and she does this. She says, here, you take a drink. I'll, I, will, uh, I will give water to your, um, to your camels. And the servant responds in a very open-handed way, just says, uh, listen, here's why I'm here. I'm here because I come from this man named Abraham who God wants to, to use to save the entire world. And he has a son named Isaac who needs a wife to participate in the salvation plan of God. And you've just, done, you, you've just performed incredible hospitality to me. And so do you want to be a part of this plan? That's what happens at the well. And we'll, we'll go more into that in a second. But, but to just pause for a minute, a life of faith, right? Is, is my life ruled by blind chance? Bind fate. No, it's not. And it, that means we should live a life of open-handed trust, but also we should live a life of 
a prayerful action. There are two qualities in uh, Eliezer's prayer that I want to draw out um, from this that I think inform the way you and I should operate in our day-to-day life, the way we pray. And the first is that Eliezer, what he's doing is he's praying God's love at God. He's praying God's promises back at God. And so twice in the prayer, I didn't read the whole prayer, but twice in the prayer, this word um, has said, steadfast love shows up, which isn't just like a word for love. It's a word referring to the covenant God had made with Abraham. It's covenant love. It's, it's faithful love. And what Eleazar is doing in the use of that word is he's saying to God, you promised a covenant to Abraham to save the entire world through. And so I'm coming not just to find a wife because it's like, you know, I, got, I, got, I drew the short straw and I have to play matchmaker. Now I'm here because you promised to save the entire world through Abraham and through Isaac and through these descendants. And so show your steadfast love, right? Reveal your covenant love through this, this journey I am on. And so I don't know what you pray at God on a, on a daily basis, weekly basis, but pray his love at him, pray his promises at him. Right? Eliezer is not praying for a wife, for Isaac. I mean, he is, but he isn't. What he's praying is for the covenant love of God to save this world, to offer a plan of salvation. He's saying, God, do what you said you were going to do. So that's one. Like, do you pray? Do you, do you know what the promises of God are? Do you know what, what God has promised to you as, as his son, as his daughter? Do you know what the, like, the gospel rights that you have because Jesus has died for you? Do you know what they are? Do you pray them to God? So that's one element to this prayer. The other is that Eliezer is asking God to keep him attentive to the normal, right? In the normal daily activity of drinking at a well, he's like, I just got to keep my eyes open to a woman of hospitality. I just wonder, like, is that the way you start your prayer uh, each morning? God, keep my eyes open to the way you're at work in the normal things, right? It's like, I'm signing up for MySpace. Little do I know, this, I'm going to get married because of this. Are your eyes attentive to the normal reality of life? And it's one reason why one of my favorite morning prayers is, is Psalm 5. And Psalm 5 begins, like, in the morning, God, you hear my voice. And starts sort of this act of worship, this morning prayer. God, I'm, I'm, I'm starting my day with you. And then it gets to verse 8. It's a transitionary moment. And this is verse 8. It says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. And what I love about that day is it assumes I'm walking into a day like all, all kind of voices are going to be thrown at me. Expectations, people, some of whom don't have great motives, right? They're enemies, some of whom might. And, and what the prayer at the start of the day in Psalm 5 is, is, Lord, keep my way straight. Keep me attentive to the direction you're leading me on. Don't let another voice lead me in another way. God, lead me on your path. Make your path straight before me. And that's really, that's what, what's going on in Eleazar's prayer is, God, keep me attentive to what your direction is, what your way is. And I, listen, I don't want any of us to walk through our days blind, ignorant, not paying attention. And oftentimes, God is going to break into your world, not through the miraculous, not through like a giant sign from heaven, not from an asteroid falling and like landing directly in you. It's probably going to be something normal that you didn't see because you're not paying attention. Right? And I'm not suggesting like that, you know, through MySpace, I should have recognized signing up for MySpace was going to lead to a marriage. And yet, like this, this prayerful action, right? This, this, I trust God, I'm going to take faithful steps day by day, should trust at the end of that path is blessing and joy 
and goodness. Eliezer, he's awake. He's paying attention. God, show me Good, show me a woman of good hospitality, and then with open hands, I'm going to invite her into your plan of salvation. I would just ask, like, when was the last time you saw God in, in just the normal? Not the miraculous, not like, you know, something crazy that happened, but just in the normal, everyday reality of life. When was the last time you, it just, that was God. And let me back up that question by saying, if you're not praying regularly, you, you'll never see those things. Because you'll be sleeping through the day, right? You, you haven't asked God to show you. And so often he's at work in the normal, right? What changes the salvation course of history is good hospitality at the well by Rebecca. That's it. And you might have an event like that tomorrow coming. Don't miss it. Your life is not ruled by chance. Our life is not ruled by chance. So live a life of open-handed trust, prayerful action and and third character now is is Rebecca. And so Rebecca, she shows Eliezer this hospitality. She gives him something to drink. She uh, gives his camel something to drink. And and Eliezer, as I said, I think it's pretty clear that Eliezer doesn't just say, hey, do you want a husband? I got one for you. But he actually lays out the whole story. Like this, there is an incredible promise. Because of your, your faithful hospitality, God is inviting you into this. Right? And so what happens is Rebecca goes back to her family to sort of to, to, to tell them, I, I want to go and marry this, this Isaac. Um, and it's clear she sees the hand of God. And I'll talk more about that in a second. But it's clear she sees like this unique invitation into a life of the salvation plan of, of God. And she goes back. And at first, her extended family is great. And we'll learn more about her extended family in Jacob's story. But then when it's time for her to go, it's clear her extended family in particular a man named Laban, uh, is not, this is, these are not honest brokers. And they're beginning to sort of finagle their way into the plan. And so when it's time to go, Laban's like, well, why don't you stay just a few more, just a few more days. Um, and it's clear, like there's ulterior motives here. Like this is not a, this is not, let me show you good hospitality. This is like, I'm going to, I'm going to milk this. this is, there's got to be some money in this, right? Like I'm going to milk something out of this. And so there, there's a tension where uh, they, they want uh, Rebecca and Elisar to stay, and they say, stay. And so what they say is, well, we'll leave it up to Rebecca. If Rebecca wants to go, she can go. If, if not, she can stay. And it's pretty clear. Either stay and let the, man, the, the family get some money out of this or get something out of this from the ASAR, um, or go and leave your family, leave your security, go to a husband you've never met, go to a land you've never met. Any of this sounding familiar to, to Abraham's life? So they call Rebecca in, and she says, um, I'll go. And she leaves her family. She leaves her security. She leaves um, everything she knows because she trusts the promises of God are going to be fulfilled through her and her husband, whom she's never met, Isaac. And the reason why I think this is clear is because uh, some of her servants say a blessing over her as she leaves. And this is what they say about Rebecca. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. And may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. And that's language that calls back to the promises God made to Abraham, that he would have so many descendants you couldn't number them, that God would bless the people who bless him and the people who come against uh, Abraham in violence, God will come against them as well. Now Rebecca is, is entering into those same promises, that she will have thousands of descendants, that she will be a protected um, life because of the blessing of God that rests over her. And so 
So she goes. And what's really interesting to me about, about this story is even though, you know, when we read about the God of the Bible, he's referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Actually, in this transition story, the focus point and the, 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 the hero, so to speak, of, of the faith of this transition moment from Abraham to generation two is not Isaac, it's Rebekah. It's Rebekah who leaves her family, who goes into the unknown, who steps into the promises of, of God. And that Rebecca understands there's a unique blessing and promise at, at, that's going on here. And so she breaks from her family. She moves into the promise of, of God. And so, so a life of faith, right? Your life is not ruled by chance. It means open-handed trust. It means prayerful action. And last, where I want to end our time, is stepping into the promises of God means there's the sense of grateful expectancy. Grateful expectancy. Right, I mentioned that one of, the, one of the lessons God's been teaching me is the sense of open-handed trust. Right? I'm, not, I'm not in control of my life. There's so, like, I can't direct things the way I want um, to, and so I have to open my hands and trust God is in, in control. And a part of, of getting to that place has been learning these two qualities, a quality of like, gratefulness and expectancy. And that's like, if I th- you know, as I think about any qualities that I want us to have as a church, like if people come in from the outside and like, you know, what's Christ Community Shawnee all about? It's like, I hope they, they sense from us that we are a grateful people and we are an expectant people. And here's what I mean by that. So first, uh, you know, what that looks like. And, and I want a couple phrases, a couple, a couple things. The first is we should be a people who, who just expect God. We expect God. Um, and, and, you know, I, I just hope through this sermon, you're like, as I told the story of my own marriage, like you're reflecting on how has God been faithful to you in the past? Right? What are, the, what are your stories of salvation where God is breaking in? Because one of the reasons why I think Abraham is beginning to live a life of faith, and he is living a life of faith at the end, is because he finally gets it, right? He doesn't see his, his life as a series of near misses and incredible coincidences, but he sees back, he looks back on his life and he sees God's hand of salvation moving in all sorts of ways. And can you look back on your own story and see that? Like, can you look back on your own story and see, like, that was God? Right? Or how many of us, we just move on, we forget our history, we don't reflect, we don't meditate on the ways God has broken into our lives, the people he's put in front of us, the experiences he's given, the ways he's, he's blessed us. How has God provided for you? It's so easy for me to get and go right to my need of the moment, to right to the uncertainty that's in front of me and to not continually meditate and reflect on his faithfulness in the past. And so if my life is not ruled by chance, it doesn't mean I begin to understand the, the story that God is telling in my own, own life. But, but like the irony that one of the, one of the primary reasons I have this incredible gift of my family, my wife, my sons, my daughter, is my space. That's just, that's just funny. It's absurd. Um, and if he, God like used my space to break into my life, like this sense of expectancy of what might happen tomorrow or what might happen today, I should live with this expectation that God is going to move. I expect God. And who knows what God is putting together in your own story right now. The pieces that are coming together that you don't see, you don't see it yet. And the only way you have the sense of expectancy with God is if you continually meditate on the past, how he's been faithful to you in, in the past. Right? And so that's one, like, expect God, this grateful expectation. And it's clear, Rebecca is setting out into the unknown, unsure of what's ahead, but knowing God will be faithful to his promises. And I'm going to step into those. 
right? So expect God, this ex- grateful expectancy, it expects God, but also it's, it lives with the spirits of, of gratefulness, right? Hands full, right? One of the reasons why you get to a place of open-handed trust is you see God has, has filled my hands to close them, right, is to remove things God has put in my hands that he has blessed me with. And Rebecca, she ends this, this narrative, this story, with this sense of awe and expectancy, right? Thousands of, of thousands of descendants that are coming, this protection from God that is, is coming. And, and if she had that and on so little, right? All she had was Eleazar's promise that God's worked through Abraham, right? That's all she's got. And yet she steps forward in this, this grateful, handsful expectancy of God. If she, if she had that much faith, how much more should we have, because we have so much more to go on than Rebecca had. And I want to be clear, like gratefulness doesn't mean that things won't go wrong or that Christians don't suffer or that life isn't difficult. That's not, I'm not saying that at all, right? Because shallow thankfulness, shallow gratefulness, it always crumbles under, under the weight of real life. It always does that. And yet, um, and yet do we have a, a heart of thankfulness to God for what he's done? Whether it's, it's my space, that's true, or... I mean, you meditate on the fact the Son of God gave his own life for us. Right? Your hands cannot get fuller than God offering his own Son, his own Son to us in salvation. Our hands are full. And it's one of the reasons why one of my favorite prayers in the Bible, we talked about praying God's promises back to him. One of my favorite prayers in the Bible is Ephesians 3. And Paul lets out this little doxology, and he, he says this in Ephesians 3. Um, he says, now to him, to God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, right? According to the power at the work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. I love that line. God can do abundantly more than we think. Right? That whatever we're praying for, like God can do more than that. Not God will do exactly what you think, right? God will do exactly what you ask him or he'll do exactly what you want him. No, he won't do that, but he will do more than what you, we, what you think. It was, like, we're not served by a God who's limited in any way, right? Who's constrained in, in any way. And our life is not ruled by chance, but by, by him. And this God is always narrating salvation out of impossible situations. Isaac has no wife. God provides Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca will, will struggle with infertility. God provides twins. Abraham's on his, his deathbed, and he lets go and trusts of God. God keeps providing. God does abundantly more than we think. And if Rebecca lived into that and, and kept this plan of salvation going into generation two from Abraham, if it's true for her, how much more true should it be for us? Because the pinnacle of our story is not, you know, an encounter at a well and a marriage happening, as good as that is, right? Our, the pinnacle of our story, why we trust God, is that God gave his own son, Jesus Christ, that he, God takes a brutal instrument of death, the cross, a place of ultimate forsakenness, evil, embarrassment, shame. He takes that, that image, a cross, and he, he turns it into an image of salvation for us, right? Some of us have like jewelry with a cross on it because that, that symbol is so meaningful to us. No one in the first century would have worn a cross as a symbol of salvation because it wasn't. It was a symbol of condemnation and judgment and shame. And God took that symbol and made a path of salvation for us. God does abundantly more than we think. He takes a cross and makes it into a place of salvation. And so whatever is in front of you, right, whatever uncertain about your own life, right, like Abraham on his deathbed, unsure of how the promise of God moves forward into generation 
to whatever is uncertain in your life, whatever you're not sure about, whatever you feel like is just going to be ruled by, by chance, pause, right? Look behind you. And not just at your own life, look back to the cross where God takes a symbol of death and makes it a symbol of life. And remember, he is the one who is able to do far more abundantly than what you ever think is possible. And if that's true, like what's ahead of you this week, right? What's uncertain? What like you with Abraham, are you sitting with open hands unsure how God is going to provide? Remember, your life is not ruled by chance, but open your hands and expect God. Let's pray. Father, a, a story about a marriage um, is so much more, and it's a, it's a sign of, yet again, how you push the plan of salvation from the hands of Abraham into the hands of Rebecca. And so we, we pause and thank you that, because among those thousands of generations that Rebecca had the thousands of descendants. Among them is a man named Jesus, who was your own son, who went to the cross, who gave his life for us so that we could know um, we are loved, we are known, we are cared for, we have a future. God, drill that deep into our hearts. Now, help us to look back that we may move forward in faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.